I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome on today's episode of Partially Excited. Your amazing host, Aaron O'Dowd, with this awesome video, audio producer, director. He has a one-stop production team and his name is Chris Eva. His company is called Subculture Productions. He's based in Northern Ireland and we'll slowly find out who he is, what he is. And hello, welcome, Chris. How are you doing today? Hi, Aaron. I'm good, thanks. How's everything with yourself? Fantastic. Good stuff. Where are you based, man? So I'm based in a little seaside town called Grimsport, which is a couple of miles around the coast from Bangor and about about 15 miles from Belfast. So pretty much in the the Belfast area. And you born and reared in Belfast? Born in Belfast, yeah. And then spent a lot of my time growing up in the north coast. So about 60 miles north of Belfast in a small town called Korea. Yeah, spent a good time there, living in the town and then a little bit in the countryside. And then I came back to Belfast then after my older years. Which do you prefer, the countryside or the city side? Uh, I like both. Uh, I think uh, gotta prefer, I love being by the sea. Um, love the countryside, love the fresh air, love being able to go and walk in the countryside and have a lot of space around me. Um, but then there was a time in my life where I really loved living in the city and you know, being able to be close to all the different shops and, you know, the nightlife and all that type of thing. So I think I've gone through that phase now and I'm, I'm back out in the countryside and enjoying living by the seaside in a kind of a small seaside town now. It's interesting how nature becomes so evident in how we live, you know. Yeah, it, it, it does. And yeah, it's just, I don't know, there's something about living in the city and you just start to feel, you know, you, you just feel how much you are impacted by your surroundings and how much is going on and, you know, how busy people's lives are and how, you know, traffic and 
all the different surroundings really affect you. So yeah, it's good to good to have some space around us and be able to walk in countryside or walk on the beach whenever we, we feel like it. Did you grow up in Belfast when all the troubles were around or later on? Uh, not really, no. So I would have been, I mean, I always went to integrated schools. So I went to the first integrated primary school up in Coleraine called Mill Strand. Um, it was around, it was, the trouble still would have been going, but then um, shortly after that, we moved up to Belfast and that would have been around the Good Friday Agreement, so around 98. Um, and then that's obviously when the ceasefire happened. So not really, I wouldn't say, wouldn't say I was brought up in the height, to the height of the troubles. So it was in that transition period where I would have been about 10, I think, 10 or 11, whenever that, that happened, you know, so can't say I've seen too much of that. I can remember kind of walking into shops and, you know, people searching your bags and that type of thing and, you know, the odd bomb scare and stuff like that. But I suppose it wasn't really until I was older when I started filming some new stuff when there was still a little bit of like dissonant activity and stuff like that, that I was getting called out to, to film some stuff like that, that I was really aware of it and you know, really exposed to it, I suppose, to a certain extent. But can't say it really affected me that much and always had a mix of friends, you know, from both sides of the community and Mum always wanted me to go to an integrated school where possible, so uh, that was that was key basically to growing up for for me. And, and living in Belfast at the time, you know, Belfast for me seems hard from travelling from the south to the north. Is that how it seems for you living there? Belfast, that's again, yeah. There's just I mean, there's a lot of lot of areas where it's you know it's divided. You know, there's it's still divided to this day. There's peace walls that go through it. And one part of the communities. You know, would be seen as the Republican community, and then the other side would be seen as the Loyalist community. So you're always aware of that growing up, I suppose. And um, even though I would have been friendly with people that were on both sides of the community, um, depending on where you were at the time, you sometimes you have to you would have to think quite quickly on your feet and stuff like that if people were questioning you and, and stuff like that. Mainly in the in the early teenage years, in the teenage years, you know, when you're a young lad, that's just the kind of stuff that happens to you. And, I would always be skating, you know, I'd have spoken a little bit about my skating before, so um, I always used to do, go out inline skating, so we would have been doing tricks like, you know, jumping down steps and sliding down handrails and all that type of thing, and that was like a little subculture that I was really passionate about, and I suppose it was just being different, it was wanting to be part of something that wasn't necessarily the, you know, stereotypical, you know, one side or the other sort of thing, it was a mixed group of people that were, that just wanted to skate together, and we, we skated with skateboarders and BMXers, and we went around all different parts of the city finding good handrails to, to slide down and, and nice steps to jump down so it was a fun time growing up but yeah depending where you were sometimes you know you were always aware of of where where it was so I wouldn't say it, yeah say some places of, or of the city would be like a hard city to, to grow up in but you, you learn very quickly to navigate around it and um, you know figure things out and know the right things to say when you need to that type of thing What made you get into skateboarding? So skating, inline skating. So basically, whenever I was younger, so whenever I was about 10 or 11, so we moved over to Switzerland. So we spent a good time living in up the north coast in Coleraine and then living in Belfast. And then so I lived the majority of my childhood with my mum. Um, and then my mum remarried and her partner was from Switzerland. So we decided that we were going to move to Switzerland and basically base ourselves there. So spent a good couple of years there and then my mum couldn't really speak the language. So we decided to move back. And um, it was over there that I, I basically was exposed to seeing skating. This whole skate scene had really developed over there. There was a lot of American culture that they were kind of following. And that's when I decided to start skating and would have been one of the first then. So after a couple of years living there, we, we moved back to, to Belfast. And 
I would have been one of the first then in Belfast to be able to do it and to kind of grow the subculture there. So it was something new. You know, we, we always used to get people used to laugh at us and make fun of us and stuff like that. But then it very quickly became popular culture, you know, mainstream culture when the likes of Tony Hawk started making video games and all that type of thing. And then all of a sudden it was cool and everybody was wearing baggy jeans and holding a skateboard in their hands. So that's how it started for me. It was great. It was, it was something that I was passionate about. It was a good way to express myself and might have had some anger issues growing up and being a young teenager and different things going on it was a good way to, to outlet that you know and, and do that through you know being creative and doing different tricks and learning new tricks and expressing that through the skating so yeah it was good what were you angry about well lots of different things I suppose like anybody who's, who's a young lad growing up it could have been school work or it could have been maybe not being um, accepted as um, a skater you know being one of the first over here and you know being a bit different from everybody else or you know maybe not necessarily falling in with the right crowd and you know people maybe not you know, not wanting to be you know friendly with certain people you know so you always kind of felt that it was a little different um, maybe from growing up as a single parent family as well and there was all, all lots of different things that I had to resolve as a teenager and, and there probably would have been some some anger there that was was coming out doing the skating but as I say it was a great great outlet for me and it'll always be something that I'll have fond memories of you know What was your favourite trick doing skateboarding? I'll have to correct you on that Aaron it's, it's actually rollerblading Oh so, you know roller oh yeah rollerblading I, I know it myself in, It's inline skating so it's not ah. the, the skateboard even though we hung out with skateboarders and BMXers so my favourite trick probably probably would have been there's that many, you know. I, I love doing five forties, so oh, like when you yeah. do one and a half spins. So I love to love to learn. I learned that, and I was able to do that down steps. And you know, there was one spot in Belfast, St Dan's Cathedral, where I had a nine step. Was you know I used to practice on. It was a great feeling to be able to spin down that and, and land backwards. And love doing very basic moves would be like a soul grind where you just have like one foot on the side of the rail and one foot crossing it and that's just a, a very steady trick that you could do on most rails and just having that feeling of being able to go and jump on a handrail and slide down it's just there was nothing else like it still to this day I would like dream about skating and stuff like that there's it's a kind of like a it's like a timeless kind of feeling that you you get it's hard to hard to describe it's like do you ever have dreams when you're like when you're flying yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like that where you're skating, but you're doing like a, a 540 and it just keeps spinning and spinning and spinning. And then you land or, you know, you're skating a skate park and you're, you know, just so fluid around it, like you have no gravity sort of thing. So you get that quite a lot. And it's quite a common dream that skaters would have. I'd say there's some adrenaline rush doing all these cool tricks. There's that as well. It was definitely. And again, I suppose there was that, there was that certain amount of. In Belfast, there would have been a lot, like where we skated, St. Dan's Cathedral, there would have been a lot of people coming there that were up to no good. So, like, um, there would have been people there, like, coming from the local areas that didn't understand what we were doing, but they could appreciate that the 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 risk factor of it, the adrenaline that we were getting from it, and in a certain way, they were respectful of it. So they, they well, that's maybe just my thinking, but they were kind of like, it would be less willing to go up and start trouble with you if they thought that you could try to jump on a handrail and slide down it 10 times you know maybe hurt yourself a couple of times doing it but you get back up and do it and it was kind of like a deterrent to them to actually tr start trouble with you because they know you're not just going to give up sort of thing so uh, there was all that side of it as well <laughs> and probably like I, I learned rollerblade and I was in Taiwan and the, the feeling to go fast and spin and rotate but probably there was different wheels and different boots you got to, to fit them right yeah, exactly. So we would have called those type of skaters rec, rec skaters, recreational skaters. So we would have been 
back then they were called it aggressive inline skating just and again there's video games now called that uh, but we had the two two wheels in the middle would have been small wheels and you would have had grind plates that were little plastic plates that you could slide easily on on stones and rails and stuff like that so yeah, we, we had all sorts of different skates that were designed that you could, could skate in that way, I suppose. Yeah, it's amazing. Like you've different style boots. You got the four line by line, you got the two by two, and then you got the two cap, two cap, you know? That's it. But uh, yeah, it's one of those things that like I'm still, like a lot of my best friends today are still guys that I grew up skating with in their, their close friends. And we've all gone completely different ways, you know, like one reoccurring theme is that uh, a lot of the people that were, filming at the time have now become you know, professional at what to do so there'd be various guys that are like myself like they're filmmakers um, and that all came from the skating a lot of people have gone different ways there's people now in business there's people working in health there's just random people working in IT complete, like everybody's gone their own own way but we still would meet up at Christmas and we'd still like go to each other's weddings and celebrations and all that type of thing so it was good good way to grow up and good especially in Belfast you know to, to meet new people from all different areas it was brilliant I also assume that you and that group got so finely tuned together that you knew each other so well and what was happening in your lives and so on you know yeah 100% and even, even though it was all very much skate orientated um, there was a lot of support there for each other so like you know if anybody was going through a hard time or anything like we were all there and skating would take your mind off it but at the same time we could you know we could always open up and talk about things and support each other where, where we needed to so yeah no it was great and it was great as well to go down to Dublin. There was, Dublin was always a couple of years ahead of us, skate-wise. So there's a couple of people down there that were professional, you know, before we were starting off. So we would have had a lot of north-south kind of relations going on, where we there was a big, massive competition that used to happen in Cork every year. Um, it would have been the Irish Championships. So we used to go down to that and meet up with all the Southerners. And, you know, that was great crack. That was like a massive party for the weekend and... To us, it was before the, the roads had kind of been built, so it was like a seven-hour train journey or something ridiculous. But it was great. It was all, all good fun and, you know, good memories for, for everybody to have, you know. Probably in that couple of years of doing it, what did skating teach you? What did it teach me? It taught me um, a certain amount of discipline. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people don't, didn't really see it as that. A lot of people thought we were almost a wee bit silly in a way because there would have been a lot of injuries, like a lot of broken wrists and broken ankles and stuff like that. But at the same time, it was, it was always something that we were told to do that still sticks with me today and it's quite relevant is like we would always be visualising the tricks before we would do them so we used to watch like professional skate videos from America and obviously America took it to the next level and they were you know producing lots of DVDs and selling them around the world but we used to watch them for inspiration I suppose and to learn new tricks and they used to have the perfect weather so they didn't have to worry about the rain or like slippy ground or anything like that so we used to watch them visualize the tricks that they were doing you know there's the grinds or the spins and then find wheels or find steps that were near us and then do it so it was I suppose what it taught me was it taught me the importance of visualization you know once you picture it in your mind and, and doing it and to me I'll always it was actually an English DVD I remember watching one of the very first ones and I loved seeing one of the guys just jumping on a rail and sliding down it and people were amazed by it and I thought you know that would be so cool if I could do that and um, I visualised it and then you know had the posters on the wall and all that type of thing and then you know it was within a couple of months that I was doing it and just just felt great it just grew from then on so yeah the power of visualisation it would have taught me you know discipline and not, not to give up keep trying things until you do it perfectly 
and there might be some pain involved in the process but as long as you visualize it and you commit to it like that's one thing as well it's kind of stuck out we always used to say commit you know commit to it and you would see people that would go up to a rail half-heartedly or pretty much guaranteed to fall and hurt themselves Whereas if you roll up to that rail committed to actually jumping on it and sliding down it, then there's a good chance that you'll land it safely, you know. So commitment and visualisation, I suppose, are. You know, for something like skating, you wouldn't think commitment and visualisation, but they're so important to be able to see yourself do the trick, commit to the trick. And probably if you don't do it, you don't do it properly. You know, it's it's interesting at, at the time when I discovered roller skating and rollerblading, I started watching the X Games and this amount of stunts they do on, you know, skateboards and BMX and inline is just unreal. Yeah, well, that's it. And that's that's what we would have kind of aimed for. You know, there was a couple of my friends that would have went to those competitions um, and became professional, you know. And we had a couple of very basic sponsorships in, in Belfast from a few of the shops and stuff like that. But the aim was to, you know, get a big sponsorship deal and go to these big competitions like the X Games and, you know, get some recognition for it. But at the same time, it was just, it was fun, you know. It was something to do. We would skate all day together and then go out in the evening together and, and socialise and, as I say, go down and south and have have great relationships with, with people that we just wouldn't have wouldn't have had growing up in, in Belfast without it you know were you kind of capturing videos while skating as well or was it just yeah. pure skating yeah so that's how it started for me and from a first for my GCSE art project it was the first year that they allowed you to produce a video so I decided that that's what I wanted to do and we used a little kind of little handheld camera, a little basic, it was a sharp kind of home video camera and just started to go out filming, starting to put together videos because of course you're, you're emulating what the Americans are doing. So the idea was that, you know, we can do our own videos and send them around to our friends down south, or our friends, the pros that were in England and just get that kind of, uh, I suppose it was recognition we were looking and but it was good fun ourselves, you know, because you're constantly visualising these tricks to be able to film them and then you know film your friends and all doing them as well there's a certain amount of satisfaction from putting it together with like your favourite song and, and watching it over again in the evening you know after a hard day or a long day of skating um, and that's that's what gave me the, the drive to, to want to do that I suppose looking back it was was getting creative with it it was you know going around Belfast and you know filming some sometimes filming a bit of the madness on the on the way and obviously Belfast is very visual with like the the murals on the walls and sometimes there would be stuff happening on the streets not necessarily sectarian but you know whether it's you know drunk people lying on their streets or you know we, hoods we would call them like other like young lads that were up to no good kind of starting fights and stuff like that we would always try to video that and put it in just to add to the, the atmosphere of the videos just to sh- show that it was a bit different you know so I remember doing that and putting some of the sectarian murals in and one of the first edits I did I think was with like the zombie song uh, Cranberries which was about kind of the divide and stuff like that so yeah it was looking back it was great uh, great way to get into the filmmaking and trying to put pictures together and uh, into a film to, to give it some context I suppose It must have felt cool to have your first video made as part of your, your school your exam project Yeah it was great you know, saying that, looking back, I could have could have done it differently. It was very much, you know, skating orientated. I could have uh, maybe added some different elements into it, but it was great. Just uh, it was brilliant to be able to do that. Other like I couldn't have seen myself doing like any other type of art, to be honest. And it was great. And then afterwards, I went on to, to do that in tech for an advanced GMVQ, which then got me into the university. So it was great. Good way to start. 
Before we had our conversation, I was thinking about all the amazing directors that we watch on TV and probably when you're growing up, you're watching the likes of Spielberg and Gorzi and all these amazing directors probably inspired you to in this area as well, right? Yeah, 100% would have been, I always remember you mentioned there Scorsese, he would have been one of my favourites. I remember watching Taxi Driver, I don't know if you've seen that movie, yeah. Robert De Niro, and um, just like, I suppose it was just, re- it was revealing such a dark, gritty side of city life. There was something about it just just really got me, you know, really um, struck a chord with me, I suppose, and sensed a certain certain amount of reality with it as well. And that's that's something that, that I'm really passionate about is capturing real life situations, real life life scenarios, and obviously it's a part part of society that we don't always see as well. And why does the reality kind of hit home with you in directing it and capturing on the video? I don't know. I guess it's just it's like growing up, you always you always feel that there's that you see things. That that maybe other people don't see. You want to capture that and share it with people to see. And if you can do it in a creative way, then there's something really satisfying about doing that. And if you can teach people something from it as well, then that's even it's even more rewarding, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm still still on the journey, Aaron. You know, I'm still uh, I'm still thinking on lots of ideas of, of lots of different ideas that you know I'm constantly thinking about and, and focusing on how I can bring them into some kind of art form or, or create some kind of moving image film with it. But it's yeah, I think we're we're all special in that way that everybody's life's unique and we all think about things differently and we might all watch. Well, a lot of people might watch the mainstream narrative, but at the same time, there's lots of people that kind of think a wee bit differently and a bit outside the box and I always felt that I was one of those people and have a kind of unique outlook look on life and interesting to, to be able to share that I suppose. And in that unique view that you feel that you have that you need to present to the world, what does it look like in your own world? What does it look like? I mean, it's in what aspect do you mean? Like, you know, an artist, when they draw something, they see something in their mind's eye and it, it emulates or becomes the reality of the painting. I'm wondering as a as a video editor and director, when you take on a project, what are you thinking about or seeing the, are you seeing the final production and working backwards? Or are you kind of seeing and feeling at the same time? I suppose it all it all comes from a need, you know. And for for me, growing up, it was even with doing the skating skate videos, and then doing my my first documentary that was that I got off the ground. It was it was showing a side to Northern Ireland that most people weren't familiar with. So like even today, you know, I was down in the gym and they had the TV on in the background, and it was you know they're talking about partition and there's like an anniversary coming up. And all they ever do is they always interview the two extremes. So they always interview people from the opposite side. And there's always this real kind of extreme viewpoint coming from either side. And I suppose growing up in with the people that I grew up with, it so doesn't reflect the way I see things or the way we see things. And I suppose I always wanted to, you know, show that there is there's such a large part of our society that don't give a shit about all that stuff, you know. And they might be brought up in, you know, families that do, but our generation and especially the younger generation, just you know, are completely different and don't really see it like that. So I suppose I wanted to to make films, and I still do, that um, show that that side of the society that don't really care about all that stuff and just want to get on with day to day life and have a, an experience that doesn't relate to the extremes, the polar extremes that the mainstream media often focus on yeah it's it's like that you know the mainstream media only focuses on two narratives but there are thousands of different narratives playing in those two at the same time exactly exactly that's it and there's just about finding that ground in between that i i find really interesting and that was the reason that my, my first film focused on hip-hop because hip-hop like 
Satan is a, a subculture that is inclusive of everybody from all different parts of society and I wanted to capture that and show that you know, there's a large part of society that do feel like that and just want to express themselves and hang around with whoever they want to and not really be boxed into one side or the other I suppose so that was a big part of, of how I, I felt I would see things not necessarily uniquely in terms of people living in Northern Ireland or living in Ireland but in terms of people that are making producing content um, maybe that's things have slightly changed now because there is a lot more I'm aware of a lot more people that are working in that field but um, yeah it is still very much I still think the media and has a, a lot to improve on I suppose in that way and I always felt that I was that was kind of my mission in life to kind of work on on doing that help changing it in some shape or form your documentary in hip hop was it hip hop in Ireland or hip hop in general so it was hip hop in Northern Ireland there's a film called Bombing Beats and B-Boys so Bombing to show a little bit of the troubles because I looked back right from the 80s right until present day and then about the beats so about the music the DJs the, the rappers and then the B-Boys as well the, the, the breakdancers so it was basically to explore whether or not there was a hip-hop scene here in Northern Ireland just when I came back from university so after being in and around London I realised there was a massive scene over there and I came back here and basically contacted a lot of my, my old friends that I used to skate with and I realised that they were actually had progressed in the, doing some of the music themselves so I came back and tried to get work as a, a cameraman setting my CV around to people and they were kept asking to me you know if you got experience if you, you know show us your CV show us who you've worked for and come and share at a uni and um, not really much on my CV I, I thought right I, I need to do something to make my own documentary so that was one of the things I focused on I soon realised that it was like skating it was a massive subculture that was inclusive of everybody from all sides of society and heard some great stories from the breakdancers that were literally going from one community to the other in the midst of the, the troubles the, the breakdance with each other you know and that was something I was really passionate about sharing and was lucky enough to get you know, funded by NI Screen our local screen agency and, and Channel 4 to, to make it so it was brilliant and again it was just uh, it was a way to, to show that things aren't always how you see them over here and the fact that those guys the breakdancers in particular and the DJs were, were crossing divides back in the 80s right, right up until present day just was amazing for me to, to be able to get testimony of that get like people's statements about that and get the archive footage and put it all together into a film it was really brilliant and I loved doing it and spent spent many years working on it probably too long as a, a filmmaker but it was a proper passion project and it was great and it was those, that sort of story that I felt you know I had the unique access to to make it and it gave me the the skills then as well to, to launch my career and then get work with other production companies as well afterwards it was great it must have been cool to have someone like Channel 4 backing a project of your own at the same time it was yeah it was it was great it felt um, felt good to have the support there was there was some issues with it as well and they didn't necessarily see eye to eye with me a lot of the time and began to realise that um, the media works in different ways as well and I decided that I, I wanted to focus on some of the early stories of the Troubles and the Oma Bomb in particular where the Bad Taste crew the renowned breakdance crew from Oma basically you know met and, and got on shortly after that the bomb they done a, a memorial for the bomb where they danced and they, they raised money and stuff like that and some of the people at Channel 4 didn't necessarily see IDI with me and didn't really want the trouble stories to be included in it and so to me that was uh, it was quite difficult to accept and obviously having the vision of my own I you know I fought, fought hard to include it 
taught me a lot about the media and what sort of programs they like to to make and how they like to portray things and to them their attitude was you know people don't want to hear about that stuff anymore and to me it was a massive part of the story and a positive story as well you know it was it was it was mentioning the troubles but it wasn't focusing on too much negativity it was how the positivity was growing from it um, and how cross-community relationships were built so yeah it was a difficult time to, to to work on it and I'd always be very grateful for the support that I did get from them and I got had a lot of time for the people that I was working with and the, the guy who commissioned it and stuff but uh, yeah that definitely definitely gave me a different sort of uh, impression of how mainstream broadcasters work and how the whole um, commissioning process works as well I guess it's kind of two-part question but you wouldn't think breakdancing hip-hop would be so big in Northern Ireland because it's such a small community and yet you know probably some of the best dancers are in there and then you're as a storyteller you're you're trying to figure out the the right story to tell that that creates the right light on on things and on the other hand you're being told by someone channel four that's supporting you and gave you massive support that we don't want this don't want that but yes as the storyteller you feel like this is the way i see it, and this is the way that the story should be told and yes that must have been quite frustrating but yes over time when it was finished you can see the final production must have been yes that was good work you know yeah, well, that's it. That was one of those ones you just have to you have to feel what's right. I suppose that's something art, like artists have to deal with as well. It's like, do you stick to your original idea and stick to your guns about something, or do you end up being influenced by people and you know making it less about about you really? I suppose, and then you know having less of a a, pers- a personal kind of approach with it. Yeah, it was, it was difficult looking back on it. It's it's a learning process, and yeah, I'll definitely do things differently looking back. But at the same time, yeah, there's, there's. I'm glad that I, I did kind of stick to my guns and that I included the stories that I included in it. With going from, you know, the skater having this small homemade bedroom type camera to doing production, probably your equipment advanced as well throughout the years to a point where you're making that hip hop documentary. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, I remember that first first camera I got was the, it was called the Sony PD150 and it would have been like your Sony camera that we, you would use for broadcast stuff. It was still on tape. So it was like looking back, it's completely different than what we use now. It was one of those things that um, I was lucky enough to be able to get one whenever I left university and, and put some money together and, and got one. And, and that was basically a, a good way to get it, get all the skills that I need to be able to, to shoot broadcast quality material and you know, definitely set me up for for being able to be a cameraman in the industry. And as I say, cameras are completely different now, but they all have a you know still have a similar layout. I suppose being able to to progress and use that and sh- shooting that as well. I was doing a lot of the sound myself and the lights, so it was a good way to be thrown in as a, a shooting director. So it's somebody who who directs and shoots at the same time. So somebody who can record the sound professionally, um, throw up a few lights when when's needed, and then have a vision of how I want the scenes to be shot and what kind of shots that I need to fill in the interviews and fill in the to the interviews and to relate to what people are saying in them. So. Yeah, it's equipment's one side of it, but I guess a massive part of that whole project was learning how to interview people and learning how to ask the right questions and how to present the questions so that you get the answers that uh, you think will work in the film and will kind of relate to the story that you're wanting to tell. Learning how to interview and plan and kind of structure the story is probably a huge learning lesson than learning the equipment. Yeah, it's 
a lot of people like they always recommend that you start on this like smaller videos so around the same time i was doing like um i was working with a production company in belfast called double band films probably one of the best production companies in in the country and i was making short little three to five minute films for channel four's website and um, so basically what they would say is you know if, once you learn how to make really good short films then you progress to doing like your your 30 minutes and then your 60 minutes and through them i was able to make films about tattooing about uh, a beatboxer shlomo who was coming over and doing a, a gig in belfast yeah it was it was a great way to, to learn how to to tell stories um, but at the same time i had just such a big a massive vision of the hip-hop documentary that i was you know had my heart set and making a 60 minute feature at the same time both were great ways to to learn the hardest thing is getting the funding to make them. Unfortunately, people in my situa- situation that you know it's crucial to have them have them funding to make them. Otherwise, you know you spend a lot of your your money that you're making either through like working in a second job or whatever way you're making money on the actual production, and there's no guarantee that you're going to get you're going to be able to sell it or get any money from it. So, fortunately, the the process of getting the money to make the programs is quite difficult, and there's there's a few companies that would kind of take the take the lead on that, and there's kind of broadcasters have their favorite. Let's just say so it's it's difficult to break in. But again, if you've got the right story and you're passionate about it, then you you know you'll find a way to make it, I guess. You know, as consumers of of video content, I think that, you know, I watch the episode, I get enthralled in the episode or the documentary, and like that's great. And I finish, like, I want to want more. But the time it takes to make it, the funding, we don't see that. We just see the final product of how it looks after it's edited, produced, and as a director and producer and making the story to you know from seed to to a tree probably takes huge amounts of effort time ability energy and so on oh yeah 100 percent, and that's why it's always key to have a good team around you again growing up i was maybe a bit stubborn and i was kind of like convinced that i could do it all myself and you know with that first documentary like i, I shot directed it and, and edited it all together and Going forward from there, I've realized the importance that it is to have a good team and, you know, for somebody like myself to be able to sh- okay, shoot and direct is one thing, but then pass it on to a professional editor, you know, have another producer involved and get people's different perspectives on it. That's how you're going to get a, a better film with more input. So, yeah, it's, it's a massive project that would definitely recommend that people do, you know, have a, have a good team whenever you're, you're wanting to make a film. And as much as the technology is there now for, you know, a director to do it all themselves, it's it's crucial to get you know other eyes working on it and get other people's opinions and other people's thoughts to help build the story and, and make it as best possible. Yeah, and and having more eyes, you can see stuff that you miss, and it makes it easier to and it makes the polished production at the end of the day. Yeah, that's it, and it's it's great that you know my career's progressed. I've been able to come on projects in different roles and. Like last year, I was involved in a project where I came on as an editor. I'd done a little bit of shooting for them, but it was somebody like myself who was a shooting director. Um, his wife was helping produce it as well, but just be able to come on as a different um, set of eyes as somebody who can help with the editing and, and film is just, again, it shows the importance of having other people involved and everybody's going to have you know, a different outlook. It's important that you all have a, you know, you're working with people that have a similar outlook because obviously you're, you're not going to get on if you don't. And, you know, my have difficult conversations but 
Yeah, it's definitely so important to have the right team for for production, and uh, yeah, a lot of time and effort, especially in the editing process, to to make sure that things work and the, the story's told in the the right way and the best way. You've probably worked with some of the best production studios and team around the world. What's the common thing you've kind of taken away from from each project? Being really honest and being genuine with your contributors. And, you know, some of the productions I've worked on, it's been quite sensitive material. So um, just seeing how the producer asks questions and how they, you know, when they make the contributors feel at ease and are honest with them and how they're going to portray the story, I suppose, is, is one thing that's, that's there and it's massively important. And just high, high production values and, and making sure that everything is the best quality that you can, you can make it. So, you, you know, spend time on doing things properly. And again, that's one thing, like when you're you're growing up, when you're starting off, you want to just get stuck in and you want to, you know, go out and shoot as much stuff as possible. But there's a lot of time that goes into planning um, and figuring out how you're going to shoot things and what what it is you're going to film. So it's that's probably the hardest bit is actually thinking about what it is you're actually going to include in the film and um, to tell the story. As you say, like people watch the, the final product and they don't think about all the, the time that's been spent on thinking about what to film and how, how to tell that story. So common themes would be, you know, yeah, being being honest and how you're going to tell the story and being sensitive to the contributors and how they might feel about being included in a film and maybe not building up that trust, building up that relationship with your contributors so they trust you to tell you the things that are important to include in the film and that you can do it with integrity, I suppose, as well. In everything you've learned when you sit down to watch a film with the family or, or your partner, did you get frustrated of why didn't you do this scene and why didn't you do that and miss that and whatever? Or you just sit down and just watch it as a normal person? Uh, yeah, there's, there's sometimes you sometimes you watch it and you you know you are thinking you'll be, you'll see the flaws. That'll be the first thing. Like if there's, if there's anything that isn't shot 100 percent, or if there's things that aren't that jar with you, you're going to spot it straight away. Other times, like if you're watching a series, like you'll see how how clever sometimes people are with documentaries and the editing process so like and I don't know if you've seen that series Making a Murder yeah where you're, you're like you're, you're never too sure whether what way the, the story's going um, and you're never too sure maybe who's telling the truth or who's not telling the truth so all that's done with incredibly clever editing and, and knowing when to bring in certain characters and when not to bring in certain characters so as a filmmaker you're aware of that um, but at the same time, if it's done properly, you'll want to continue watching it because you'll know that towards the end of the series, there should be some sort of resolution anyway. And you shouldn't be frustrated after watching it saying that. Sometimes you are, but things like that you're aware of. But I think most people are these days as well. You know, people know there's there's definitely clever techniques used for, for filmmaking and for, for film production. You know, I, uh, during the lockdown, I watched some movies from the 80s and you watch movies now, you can see a complete different on the set, the, the camera work, the technology, how it's moved on. But yes, you kind of giggle about the, you know, the cardboard boxes for certain scenes and everything. I just, it's funny to see the difference. But now it's it's so digital. It's like, whoa, you can't see that or whatever now, you know? Well, that's it. Yeah, the, like the technology's progressed so much, like with CGI and stuff like that. And what they can do on productions is amazing. That's the kind of stuff you can really, you know, immerse yourself in and like really just, yeah, it's, it's, it is amazing. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I love watching 1990 cartoons where it's the hand-drawn cartoons because it's 
to get that you've all these little sketches and they're all cameraed as one when you watch it it's one scene but when you start watching the documentaries how they made it it's like you know 10 30 40 different sketches to make one scene i think was amazing to see yeah well that's it it's a lot of pre-production like there's still a lot, like the amount of time that goes into storyboarding and all that is amazing and finding the right person to do that as well and somebody who's who's got the, the skills to do that it's not easy and yeah people have all different ways of doing it tell us about subculture how did it, like you mentioned that it, it's part of the subculture of belfast but where did it kind of come to your forefront of idea that i want to capture the subculture of you know the world in some way Basically, it, it all started off from this, this subculture of skating back in the day, and that's what grabbed my attention. And I suppose after working on the hip-hop documentary, I was aware of so many other subcultures out there that I guess all had a common theme of you know not wanting to conform to a lot of the, the stereotypes. And all, a lot of them had a, a similar message of you know, inclusion and you know wanting to break down barriers and at the same time get their, their art form to a very high level. So... Back then, I when I set it up, it was I was I just got the funding through for the hip hop documentary, and I was inspired to make a lot more films. Um, my first one was about graffiti that I did for UTV, um, and then I progressed into the longer one, the hip hop documentary. But yeah, like I say, I've done films about tattooing. I was working last year on another idea for about. Um, tattooing and, and filming some of the tattoo parlors in, in Belfast but it's it's kind of grown now that so I subculture would have two sides to it so one one side of it would be the kind of TV production side of things and then the other side would be working in the kind of more business sector and, and making videos for different brands and, and different businesses and um, after the last couple of years I've started to, to see that the subculture can be used in the business side as well of, of being able to tell the story of, of a brand's culture or of a business culture and be able to do that in, in different creative ways so um, the minute that's what I'm working on and to, to try to build up that side of the company a bit more and be able to use you know our skills to you know showcase the brand's culture I suppose and, and do that creatively through video production but yes yeah, subcultures are something that I've grown up with I'm always going to have a, a place for them in my life and I, I always you know see the importance of them even just today so I'm, I'm involved with a, a charity in Belfast called Fifth Element which is all about hip-hop culture and you know teaching young people and doing different workshops with community groups to educate them through hip-hop um, and I just got a request actually today from a, a production company down south who are making a, a series for RTE about subcultures um, and they're in Belfast they want to use the space in, in Fifth Element to film an interview in Belfast about um, an artist who's, who loves hip hop so that was one of my ideas I wanted to, to make a series about subcultures and I pitched it several times years ago and it's it's funny now that, that RTE are making a, a series about it it's not funny because ideas always good ideas always get made in the end and um, it just depends on timing I suppose and who's the right commissioner in there to, to get them over the line but yeah that's that's how I came up with the name sometimes I question it whether it's the right name or not but yes I suppose it's done alright so far and as long as I can understand that it can be related to both the, the TV work and the, the passion that I have for, for telling stories through film um, and then can also be used in the, the business side of things then I think it'll be a good name to, to stick with I was watching a, a video this morning, you describing what your setup in the studio you have. Tell us about how you came across the equipment and the studio and how you bring people in and film and record them to allow their projects to do what they want to do. 
Yeah, so, so what one was that arm? Was that just going through the, the cameras that I had? You were going through the cameras and the you, how you made your room and the soundproofing and the audio and the kind of how you use the, the audio to capture you know, social distancing in the room. And I just yeah. thought it was amazing how, first of all, you got a cool room and second of all, all the kit you have. It's, it's You can see the years and passion and everything you're doing at the same time, you know? So, yeah, so at the minute I've, um, I've invested in a lot of film gear. So it's... Well, any a lot of filmmakers will tell you the same thing. It's like they're all any money they get in, they always just spend it on equipment straight away because you just there's so many different things that you need to to be able to to film properly, I suppose, and the stuff's not cheap. So anytime that you you get some money, you're kind of spending it. The you spend it to make more money, I suppose, is what you would say. But yeah, so I've um, I've invested in equipment, so high end cameras that. Um, that shoot like really good quality video, shoot up to like 4.6K video. Um, and they can shoot a, like a flat raw format so that you can grade them to look very cinematic and depend on what the, the story is, depend on what the film is, that you can really you know push the grade to, to add really good color. They're, they're Blackmagic cameras and Blackmagic are well known for, for color grading. And that's that's the road I've, I've went down. And I think there's a, a great image from them. And the cameras that I have, they're very similar to kind of Sony's main camera that would be used for documentary filmmaking, the Sony FS7, which I would also use for a lot of TV projects. I don't own one, but sometimes I would hire, hire them or I would use the production companies themselves. Yeah, so Blackmagic's version of them are amazing. Yeah, they're they're good. They can sit in your shoulder. They you know, they're not too heavy. You can put all different lenses on them depending what you're filming and what kind of look you're going for. And then the audio side of things is, again, it's just things that you pick up over the years. So you'd use wireless mics, which is, you know, you, you're probably familiar with them. That you, you know, you put a tie mic on and you can have somebody walking around the room or walking about outside without a cable going into the camera. It just sends the signal straight to the camera and you've you've got lovely audio. Um, and then I've got different shotgun mics as well and condenser mics that you can use either on the camera or you can put on a boom and, you know, have somebody holding it for you. Uh, and swinging the boom and uh, got the little receiver that lets you do that wirelessly as well so you don't have to use cables and it's, uh, it's things that are very common in, in TV and film production and once I, I got the funding for my, my first film I invested in, in all the sound equipment and the lights some of those I still have today and I'm still using um, and then I've, I've added to the collection and I've got some other new lights and mics and stuff I like got as well so it's just the it's just the way things are. You need to have that kind of equipment if you want to do things professionally. And obviously, I'm a freelancer as well. So um, when I'm not making my own productions, I'm working for other people, and they need to be able to to trust you to to capture and you know deliver and, and what it is you're doing. And so you always need to have good good kit to do that. The last thing you want to be doing is worrying about you know having dodgy equipment or maybe stuff that's not really up to scratch. So it's very important. It's about constantly, it's about making sure, I suppose, that you get the work to work to pay for it all and to, to make it worthwhile. And yeah, so far it is. And same, same with the drone side of things. And, you know, I was able to, to invest in some drone, drone equipment as well. So I've got like one of the highest end drones you can get. Um, it's, a, it's a drone that you could use for feature films and you know high-end documentaries and again it's, it's just about pushing the pushing myself out there now and that's one of the reasons why I'm doing the live videos just to make, make people know who I am and you know people always a lot of people say it's all about who you know but you know at the same time it's about who knows you and um, it's one thing I've been fairly quiet over the years and I think now is a good time to, to start making a bit of noise and making people know who I am and what I can do I suppose. 
when you're on the field, you're probably like one of those, you know, those military backpacks carrying your backpack with all the cameras, the lenses, and and trying to swap from one lens to the next, to get a wide and narrow shot. You you must have buckets of lenses in your pockets when you're out shooting on the field, you know. Yeah, it's again, it's one of those things you have. You learn very quickly to to go light if, when you need to. A lot of the times you'll have a an assistant or you'll have a runner with you who can help carry stuff or you, know, you can help run to the car if you need another lens or you need other batteries or lights or whatever. But let's just say you need need to have a big car or a van to keep a lot of the equipment in. Yeah, you need to have stamina as well to be able to hold it for a long. A lot of times you're out filming for long days and you've got a camera on your shoulder, so you need to be fairly fit. And that's why you, you need to keep a, a fairly good regular fitness plan in place as well. Otherwise, you just, you know, it just wouldn't be possible. But yeah, it's all fun. And here, your days fly in when you're doing it, you know, because I've been lucky enough to work on interesting projects. And as long as you're, you know, you're enjoying yourself and you're, you know, new and interesting people, then you know, the day's flying. And um, as I say, it's something that I love doing anyway. And it's, uh, it's great. But yeah, sometimes it does, it does take it out of you. Like if you're filming for long days and you're carrying all your equipment and, you know, you're, you're up late at night. It's, if you do that for long days, you do, you do burn out after a while. And it's important to kind of keep, make, make time to rest and recover from it, I suppose. As someone that captures, you know, the human subculture of people, you must come across stories that make you awe and cry at the same time. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I mean, I've been lucky that I have been able to work on some really interesting projects. And um, like I was talking in one of my live videos there, I was was lucky enough to work on a documentary series where I was traveling in America and I was a cameraman for, you know, a, a team over here where we were meeting lots of people that, you know, were talking about nutrition and it was nutrition experts and, you know, it was people that used nutrition to, to turn their lives around or create massive change in their life and the series called Live Longer, Live Better. Some of the stories I heard in that were just amazing, you know, and like we're told they had to have chemotherapy and they like they were having like they were far on with cancer. They just decided one day that no, I'm not actually going to have chemotherapy. I'm just going to eat healthily and beat this. And they did, you know, and hearing hearing stuff like that. And we also met um, people that were on tour on a bus. It was, it was called the Vaxed Bus, and they were making a documentary called Vaxed about vaccinations and about a lot of the like young babies that were having a lot of trauma and like some of them, a lot of them had passed away after having vaccinations and like here, here and that was really hard and um, the bus was just filled with dates and babies' names and their, the dates that they passed away and hearing doctors, like past doctors and nurses talk about that and it's quite eye-opening but at the same time, you know, sad when you're hearing parents talking about it as well so yeah that and then um, I was doing I was filming for CNN documentary on the Hillsborough disaster you know hearing about some of the first hand like accounts of that was quite eye opening as well and yeah, there's lots of different projects that you know, definitely that really do get you thinking. And it's one of the great things about having a job like this, where you, you know you do get to hear projects like that, and even the new stuff as well. Sometimes you do get to hear um, stories, not always always good ones, but yeah, difficult ones as well. Like I was I was filming for a news report on, you know, did you hear about the the immigrants that were found dead in the lorry? Yeah, I can't remember how many, but it was like thirty or forty of them. Yeah. And I got the call out to go and film that the guy, the driver's house. So I had to go down and film his house on the night that he was arrested, and like they found all the bodies. And like you're getting people shouting abuse at you and stuff, and like they're saying, "Oh, why are you why are you filming his house and all?" And like media scum and all this, and like being quite threatening and like basically saying he, like he he wasn't guilty. 
but at the same time, like the broadcasters waiting for me to send them the footage of the house and um, interviews with like, local politicians and stuff about it. And yeah, it's one of those things you're never quite sure. Like on the, at the time, you're, you're like questioning yourself, like am I like is he innocent? Is he not innocent? And um, with that one, like seeing his house and seeing like the BMWs outside his house and stuff like that, kind of made me think. For a young twenty-something-year-old truck driver, there's maybe something going on. You know, McGovern was right. Yeah, he was found guilty, but at the time, it's, you can be put in some difficult situations as well with it. You know, but just the nature of the job, I suppose. And you always got to trust your instinct. And if there is any times that you're you're not happy with it or you, you feel you're in danger, then you just you just don't go there. You know. Is there a way that you can switch off, like if you have a situation or you're filming a situation like you just described, that kind of emotionally taxing, like, you know, someone getting arrested over a murder or something like that, that must delve into the subconscious over a while, you know, after months of finishing that project? One thing I think a lot of cameramen do or, or filmmakers do is when you're, when you're actually looking through the camera and you're seeing the picture on the viewfinder, you're seeing it through the, you know, through the, the eyepiece, that kind of detaches you it's different than seeing it in real life and like it's the same in South Africa like I've been over there quite a lot filming with a charity and seeing extreme poverty and like I'm working on a project about you know people living in a dump and stuff at the minute and that was probably one of the hardest hardest hitting ones because you know seeing like following a guy who pretty much grew up in a dump and he's still living there you know in his 20s was really hard and you know it's things like that that you can attach yourself from at the time but it's, it tends to be like when you're finished when you're back at you know about to go to sleep or something like that's when you can really you can think over what what actually happened and why what you were doing that can be quite emotional I suppose it's just yeah it's using your intuition thinking if is there anything why am I here why am I doing this is there anything here that I can do to, to help I suppose and sometimes there is sometimes there isn't yeah it's just you can't that's how you detach yourself you you focus on the, the image that you're seeing through the camera rather than seeing through your eyes so you're almost like you're watching tv if you know what i mean you're, you're seeing it on that screen and you're constantly looking at your your levels and your exposure and all the settings in the camera and keep doing the job at hand rather than seeing it for what it is i suppose and that's a way of detaching from it that's kind of interesting you wouldn't you wouldn't think that and how you watch the footage as watching TV and yet you're probably taking in the images to kind of feel if that's a right shot or good shot or not. You know, you do documentaries, but have you ever delved into like making other movies except documentaries? So they mainly be documentaries. So I have worked on some factual entertainment shows. So it's more like um, you know, there's like a gate. There's like there's some kind of game involved, or there's it's more than just a, an observational documentary or a, a factual program like that. Other than that, I haven't. It's something that I'm looking into at the minute. We're actually actually working with a scriptwriter at the minute, and he's he's brought some good ideas to the table, and we're thinking about doing a short film that way. But uh, like I say, my main passion's always been kind of the factual side of things and my passion about like capturing reality, I suppose. And I always kind of thought if it's not reality, it's not real. It's not, hasn't got that same edge to it. But saying that, I appreciate what, you know, dramas can give and, you know, how stories can be told that way as well. So it's something that we're looking into at the minute. Um, yeah, we're actually having a meet next week about, you know, what script we're going to take forward and see if we can get some funding for that. And um, we've already got an idea of what type of crew we would use for that and maybe do things a bit differently. So it's it tends to be more bigger crews when you're doing that. So it's, you know, you've got a bigger crew for all different departments. And um, yeah, it's something, something we're looking at. But yeah, up until today, it's, it's something we haven't really done, but looking too soon. 
Chris, where would you eventually like to be? Like a Steelberg kind of character in directing and producing, or are you kind of happy doing the subculture productions? Uh, the way I see things going is um, I see the company growing so that um, both sides grow, so the TV work and the, the documentary production will grow, and at the same time, the other side of the more business productions and the more commercial com- productions, I suppose, that you would, you would say, also grow. So there's two, two sides of the business, and I'd like to have people top of their field working on, on both of those sides. For myself as a filmmaker, obviously, you know, I'd, I'd like to have more films that, that I'm able to give my voice to, that I'm able to um, present my picture of the world to and get them out to wider audiences. So make more documentaries that have global appeal and can go into film festivals and you know maybe make it onto the network TV stations and stuff like that. It's finding the right story that I'm passionate about and that's going to keep me motivated to make that at the same time we'll get some funding to make it. That's always the hard bit with trying to keep things rolling um, and keeping the business surviving at the same time. So yeah, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to do that. I'd like to basically get more films off the ground. I would like to, I'd like to win a few awards with them. That's a, that's always a good goal to have. Um, get some recognition from some of the film festivals. Yeah, work with people at the top of their game. So work with you know top cinematographers and, and editors and producers to to tell those stories that I want to tell. And um, I've got a couple I'm working on at the minute, and I've got big plans for them. But it's just it's just keeping the keeping that vision, keep uh, visualizing it, and, and making moves to to get them made. I suppose is is key to it and keeping focused. So that's where I'd, I'd like to go. I'd like the company to to grow so it can run without me. I suppose so it can produce some um, you know videos in the commercial sector um, and some you know, content for like TV and, and film without myself so I can still be a freelancer and I can still work at, some, at a higher level on some other productions that's always been a goal and that's something I'm continue work, continually working on to, to build a good team that it, that it can run because that's one thing they always say you don't have a business unless it can run without you you know and Unfortunately, at the minute, I'm spending a lot of my time running it and doing a lot of a lot of things myself. So that's the plan. Um, obviously, spend a lot more time with the family as well and have a, a better work-life balance and make those those dreams come true. I suppose. I get the feeling that this makes you excited being in the camera capturing the stories. Is that true? Does this ex- make you excited to get up in the morning and and do everything? If if someone offered you a better job out there with better pay, would you take it, or you feel like this is my job I'll do for the rest of my life? Yeah, hundred percent. That's it's one of those things that I suppose it's you can be you can do things on your terms, you know. So you, like, if I wanted to make a if there was a story that came to me or somebody came to me with a really important story that I wanted to tell, that I could just I could just use my equipment and use the skills and make it. And that's that's that was always the aim of having the skills and having the kit to be able to make professional documentaries that can give something to the audience that can either educate them or, or make them feel a certain way about a certain subject. Sometimes, I suppose, with everything that's going on, you, you kind of get sidetracked. That you know, when you're working for other productions and tell, like filming for other people, or you're working on the business side of things, that you forget that that was that was always the aim. And it's finding those stories and and finding the burning desire within you to tell them. I suppose is, is something I feel passionate about, and I just I know I need to focus more on it. The the feels that I'm. No, it's related to the, my values, I suppose, as, as a person, as a, a human, that um, I'm fulfilling that, that need to a certain extent. What is mastery for you in the skills that you have? 
mastery. Yeah, like you know, like mastery in a sense of have you mastered your your skill set to be the best producer that you can be. To me, it's there's so many like it's there's there's so much that I still have to learn, and it's it's one of those things. It's it's picking a, a skill set and going that. It's like um, you know, it's like people say that one. You know, you, you know, you're a jack of all trades if you don't just specialize in one thing. And to me, it's it's picking the one that I want to to specialize in, and then being being the best that I can at it. So if whether that's a cameraman or a shooting director or a producer, that's something that I need to figure out. And at the minute, I'm spending. All a lot of time as a cameraman and as a shooting director and being able to tell stories but at the same time I've burned desire to produce stuff and work with other professionals so mastery I suppose is, is knowing how to get the stuff made and, and actually getting things made and throwing all those things together using all the skills that you have to get things done taking action and, and getting projects made I suppose that's that's key for me and whether that's you know jumping on as a as a director and I'm not shooting stuff and just directing things or shooting stuff and maybe just being a cameraman on on a project, it's picking the one that you you know value most, I suppose, and then really going for it and doing everything you can to do it the best way possible. And for me at the minute, it is it's being being a director that can shoot things to a very high level. So it's it's being able to tell stories. Ideally my own, but shooting them myself to a very high level with the equipment that I have and with drones and, you know, with aerial cinematography as well. And that's that's something that I love to do. But it's finding a way of doing that with my own stories, I suppose, is key. And if I'm able to do that and get them funded and get them available to people around the world, then that's to me that's would be no mastery for me in my position at the minute. Chris, if someone met you on the street and they asked you for one piece of advice that everything you've experienced so far in your story, what would it be? One piece of advice around around what, Aaron, is this around video production? Around around video, production, skating, kind of everything that Chris has experienced from coming out of the womb to now, you know? One bit of advice? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Bit of advice would probably be determine what your values are in life and and make plans to make plans to do go down a certain path in life that is going to relate to those values, I suppose, and meet those expectations. Chris, if people want to get in touch, you to do all your work. Where I think where can they find you? So if if people are looking to get in touch, they can drop me an email at christophereva at gmail dot com. So that's christophereva at gmail dot com. Or they can check out my website at chriseva.uk, which is about some of the freelance work that I've been working on. Or if they're looking to get in touch about any other work, they can check out Subculture Productions. So that's S-U-B hyphen productions.com and just drop us a line. I'd love to hear from people if they've got any ideas for documentaries or you know, an online series or even if it's just a, a video for themselves or for their company, then drop us a line. I'd love to hear from them. Chris, thank you so much for coming to the show. It's been a pleasure and you've got a great story. Thanks very much, Aaron. Thanks for your time and good chatting to you. What, what about you, Aaron? One, one question for you. Yeah. What would you say to somebody who met you in the street and you had one bit of advice for them? I would say play. Play play with what you have. You know, we all have a skill set. We all are unique. We all are partially excited where disability is everyone. And I believe that everyone has a disability, you know, in different variations from physical to invisible. And yet when we don't play, we get stuck. And when we do play, creativity happens. So play. Brilliant. 
Good stuff. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.